South Africans still have to get to the point where we are, where we don't consider argument a vicious, violent, ugly thing. Yeah. Where we consider argument the highest form of intellectual togetherness. And I think we've got a problem in this country where a lot of men, and I think especially a lot of black men, feel that they're only being evaluated on what they can bring home. And I feel strongly that I would rather hear an opinion I don't want to hear than have you Muslim. I had good friends who I would just abuse uh, mentally. Mm. And I thought, what a horrible thing to do. I don't know when it clicked, but that I regret. Mm. That I got wrong in a big way. Hey, spread the fire. Welcome to SMWX. We've already kicked off. Our conversation is about two hours in already. So um, if you're joining us... Sorry, I didn't know yeah, you weren't no, recording. No. <laughs> uh, Gareth Cliff. Yes, sir. Great to have you. And, you know... <sighs> One of the cool things about these digital media platforms is we get to do things differently mm. and and understand guests and the people we talk to from different angles to the angles that are pushed upon us in mm. in um, the traditional space. I'm interested in the backstory of Gareth Cliff. You've been in the spotlight and the public eye for so long. What What was life like before you were in the public spotlight? What was your upbringing like? And was there a moment in that upbringing that you think led you down the path towards broadcasting? Uh, that's, a, that's a lot of stuff. And considering I now have to stretch my mind back to my childhood. <laughs> I mean, it's becoming increasingly difficult <laughs> yeah, to think that yeah. far back. Um, I had a lovely childhood. I'm very fortunate. I have two uh, wonderful parents who are still very much together and mm. raised us with lots of love in the house. I've got a younger brother and sister both of whom are much more successful and much cleverer than me. Aha. Uh -huh. And I grew up in, in an almost idyllic sense. I mean, I had, you know, I, we, we weren't wealthy by any means, but we had, we had space. And as a kid, I had room for imagination. And I think that if there's mm. any USP to being, you know, raised in, in, a, in a world that anything's possible in the way we have technological advances beyond the belief of most people. I think being taught or being allowed to imagine at an early age is probably the greatest gift you can get. Mm. And we talk often in this country and in, in the world about privilege, but I believe that the greatest privilege is to, to be raised by parents who love you. Mm. Uh, that is by far and away greater than any of the other kinds of privilege that exist in this world. Mm. And it's one that I'm very, very fortunate to have. And I don't take it for granted because I know uh, that it is, I mean, this is, there's a reason you just had a kid. So congrats on that. But yeah, I don't have any children. There's a reason I've decided not congrats to. On that. And look, yeah, I mean, I may change my mind. I reserve <laughs> the right to change my mind. But it's a damn difficult job. Yeah. And it's a zero sum game if you're a parent, you mm. know, by the end of it, and there isn't an end because as long as you live, you're a parent. Mm. Um, no matter what happens to your child along the way, I think the hardest thing for any parent would be to lose a child. I think it's the hardest mm. thing for any human to go through. Mm. But you never really know whether you've done a good, good job or not, right? You yeah. kind of, along the way, I think, I think we've done okay. But mm. then, you know, your kid does something ridiculous or stupid or you let them down and you suddenly go, oh, what have I done? So I think it's a very difficult business 
being a parent. I'm very grateful for the childhood I had. Mm. I went to a, a, a government school. We, we started, I mean, I matriculated in 95. So hmm. I didn't get to vote in the first election. Um, but I was, I was very politically aware from an early age. And I was very interested. I remember watching, um, just because it was a momentous occasion, not because I'm trying to romanticize things. Mm. In any case, these days, talking to anyone under 30, they don't think it's romantic. But I remember watching Nelson Mandela being released from prison. And mm. my mother said to me, you, you must watch this. This is an important moment. And I've always been a lover of history. So I kind of understood that she meant what she said. And I paid attention. And I remember him coming out of there, you know, he and Winnie um, walking out of Victor Verstair prison and then going to the city hall in Cape Town in Cyril's old Merck making that speech from the balcony there. And I listened as a, as a teenager. And I remember thinking, this is a big thing. The world is watching South Africa. And that made me proud. So I don't know that I was always interested in politics, but mm. I was always interested in history and world events. And I think politics is a subset of that. Mm. Um, in terms of broadcasting and media, because you asked, I, I don't know that there was ever an indication that this is what I would do. I didn't mind making people laugh at school, probably because I wasn't the fastest and my marks weren't ever that good. I never really applied myself. I was as lazy as can be mm. as a student. I, I did a, a, a quick cost-benefit analysis in my head <laughs> at some point in high school. And I went, so if I work really hard and I get like 98%, but I don't have any fun yeah. and I don't have any friends and I spend my entire day leaned over a book learning algebra, you know, equations and, and, and formulae in physics. What's that worth? Otherwise, I could do just enough to get a 60 or a 70 mm. and have, a, have the life I've got now. And <laughs> it was an easy sum for me to make. So yeah. I wasn't particularly academic. I wasn't particularly sporty. But I enjoyed communication. I enjoyed, you know, sort of speeches. And, and I, I, liked, I liked schoolwork. I enjoyed chemistry, for example. I did very mm. well in that. But if I didn't like a subject... I just didn't put any effort in. Mm. And maybe that should have been a, a sign that I, I, I would have had an early kind of ADHD. They didn't diagnose it in those days, but it must have been something like that. So mm. part of what drew me to broadcasting and why we're here now mm. is that I enjoy things that are constantly on the move. I'm, I'm always stimulated by other people's conversation, mm. ideas. Um, and I don't think there's a, you can't reach rock bottom with that. You can keep on digging, yeah. which is pretty cool. There's always a gem at some level. You know what kind of frustrates me about the broadcasting space is that the instant something becomes popular, people assume that there isn't deep intellectual work behind it. And this, being... is, why, this is why, by the way, Socrates, if he ever gave a lecture... And people started to applaud. He would leave the stage. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, as YouTubers, that's a, that's maybe we should just stop. We should just We're, stop. If, don't click the like button. <laughs> Do <laughs> yeah, not but subscribe. But there is this yeah. perverse relationship mm. between mm. being popular yeah. and populism, and we see leaders all over the world who are mm. populists, mm. and I don't know whether they're smart people or not, mm. and having deep and meaningful conversation, being a communicator. And the thing is, like being a communicator and finding a way to resonate with a large audience is is not just hard, it's intellectually hard because you often have to do a lot of thinking about how you position it, how you frame it, 
how you have the conversation in such a way that it'll go in a different direction, but people will understand it. And in academia, people look down on that. They're like, why are you trying to appeal to a wider audience? But I remember coming on Cliff Central once about one of my books. And I knew of you, but I, you know, I didn't know you very well. And then you were like, yeah, in Plato's Republic. And I was like, huh? Gareth Cliff. You thought I was a radio DJ. That's fine. I'm used to, and by the way, I think this happens to you as well. Mm. Um, We're certainly not going to spend the rest of this discussion navel gazing, but Mm. I think people underestimate almost everyone they meet because Mm. they they put you in a box. Mm. They say, well, this is a person who is either famous or they've been on television. They've judged some singing show. And therefore, they must be just a moron who's like a Mm. monkey who dances on stage. Mm. And a lot of people still think that of me, and and that's okay. I've I've long ago Mm. abandoned the idea that I need to win everybody over, and it's made me Mm. happy. Mm. And and to be perfectly frank, I don't think anyone can be happy if you're trying to win everyone over. If you try to be everything to everyone, you will end up being nothing. And in academia, you have the opposite problem, as you said. Mm. In, in the academic world, you have people saying, oh, well, if you're trying to be popular, you're obviously not making, you know, there's no rigor to it, which is absolute nonsense too. It's why so many of the academics that I know live in these ivory towers, talk to each other, philosophize, come up with some new critical theory on something, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. No one will ever read their thesis. They will die, and they will be forgotten within moments of their death. And they think that somehow they've lived a much more um, honest, decent, uh, intellectually important existence. They haven't. Yeah. There's, there's actually very little difference between them and the girl who shakes her ass on Instagram. <laughs> Except that the girl who shakes her ass on Instagram will be mourned by a great many more people. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to steer our discussion. <laughs> into the groves of you steer steer it where you want to go (laughs) go on no because you know the more the more i then you know thought about your life and and actually did try to do some research on who you are (laughs) good luck Um, research means googling right yeah well hey i'm an academic so i I have my my you have better you you go a bit deeper but um the the your intellectual life because you went to university you started down the legal path, you left legal path, went to history and international relations. Of Which all. was also a total waste of time, not the history. Yeah. Hey, I'm, hey I'm an international relations lecturer here, come now. Sure, come but now. remember <laughs> at the time I was studying it, when I was doing my final year, 9-11 happened, which just threw mm. the entire mm. you know, idea of America being a global hegemon, all of that stuff just yeah. was reduced to ashes. Well, what, what, I'm, what I'm actually interested in is the legal part. Obviously, you left okay. law. But why were you interested in the law? And even though you didn't necessarily enjoy it or pursue it to the end, has it played a role in your life? No. Since I, then? I, I found, see, people think I'm grumpy and, uh, and, and ornery because I sometimes have arguments with people. Of course, those are the only things that go viral. Uh, yeah, I have a great exactly. many more discussions with people that are fun and light yeah. and humorous and interesting and... Um, those nobody cares about mm. unless they're involved in them. And, and thankfully, there are lots of people who listen to us and uh, who care about this stuff. Mm, mm. But law actually made me very uh, cynical. Mm. I, I wasn't as cynical before law. Maybe it was a good thing. I'm not going to reject it you know, out of whole cloth. But I do think law tells you the very worst stories about people. And you encounter them in their very 
worst activities. And you never, ever phone a lawyer when something good happens in your life. You only phone them when you've been arrested, when you're going through a divorce, mm. when you're having contractual disagreements with your employer or a partner. Mm. You never call your lawyer and go, hey, I just wanted to tell you I'm having a great day. And I didn't want to be <laughs> the person at the other end of that call. And O.J. Simpson's trial was a big thing um, that made law a bit glamorous, you know, and and I think maybe that played into it. It's sort of like there, were, there was a whole crop of people who started studying law because Oscar Pistorius was on trial yeah. in 2014. Yeah. Hopefully those people have uh, found more wholesome careers <laughs> since then. But I also think, I mean, my sister's an advocate mm. Mm. and she loves the law and she's excellent at it. Mm. I just couldn't have imagined an optimal situation with me in the law. And listen, I mean, uh, you know, your father and, and Tembega Kaitobi, who were advocates for me on that case against yeah. Mnet, famously, yeah. um, I watched them work their magic mm -hmm. and I saw them do their thing and I thought, wow, that's, that's, it's, it's a very cool thing to be able to do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But there was no desire to into that field it's like when you watch a doctor doing their thing you, you yeah. don't necessarily want to be the one operating sure. but you can appreciate the mastery mm, mm. you know i was actually in the back of the courtroom on that day it must have been like 12 <laughs> <laughs> I I, people still say i look 12 which is which yeah. is becoming a problem but yeah i just um <clears throat> that case was so public and there were so many divided and polarized opinions and nobody seemed to know what the case was about in the first no. place um <clears throat> And often, just when my father has an interesting case, I'll just go and sit in, in the back of the courtroom and watch. Because I actually am interested in the craft. I love the rhetoric yeah. of the oh, courtroom. Oh, it's amazing. The theater of the courtroom. Yeah. And <clears throat> I remember that day quite well. I remember it quite well. How do you, how do you look back on it? So do there? I. Well, yeah. I, I, I'm always and forever grateful to your dad that he actually said to me, um, on the morning that I had him on my show, and he also told me that when talked about the SABC earlier mm. when he was at the SABC when he left I interviewed him and he said listen if mm. these guys ever try to fire you come to me oh great so I thought all right well <laughs> I kept that in my mind right yeah I had and experience then, and then exactly when I interviewed him uh, later on I said to him listen I think with this whole furore around free speech and Musi Maimane and Penny Sparrow and everything I think these guys might fire me and he said to me if they try you must phone me. You must not just back down. Because mm. I didn't really have, I, I was tired of the show anyway. Mm. <clears throat> but I, again, thankfully, I listened to someone wiser than me. Went uh, to the meeting, left the meeting. They had, they'd basically said to me, you know, we, we're going to rather go back on this contract. And I phoned your mm. dad and he said, we're taking this all the way. Mm. So get ready. Mm. And... I mean, it was a hell of a ride, but it was probably one of the most stressful things that's ever happened to me mm, because mm. the stakes were high, right? If yeah. I had lost that reputation dashed against the rocks, um, I'd have to have started again probably in another country because it, was, it mm. was devastating. Just the things that people were saying about me that were completely untrue, the things that the opposition were saying in court about me being a poster boy for racism. And yet there I was with the then national chairperson of the EFF as my advocate Eric Mabuza who who was later on Jacob Zuma, Jacob Zuma's lawyer mm. um, as my attorney and I'm like you're going to call me that when I've 
entrusted my entire life to these guys. You're going to say I'm a racist. Anyway, it was hilarious mm. because mm. Fim Trengrove, who I saw some years later, yeah, yeah. I mentioned him in my book in the chapter on the story. Right, right. And I said, from the poster boy for racism. <laughs> and he just kind of gave it a smile. But I've realized also there's collegiality among these advocates that they yeah. they may be in opposition in the most furious way in court, but outside of court, they'll sit and have a coffee together. Absolutely. And as long as they're not discussing that matter, they're as happy as can be. And I think that's how it should be with everybody. Mm. We should be able to have complete disagreement around socialism and capitalism or whether or not democracy or autocracy is the best system. And then still get along afterwards. Mm. South Africans still have to get to the point where we are, where we don't consider argument a vicious, violent, ugly thing. Yeah. Where we consider argument the highest form of intellectual togetherness. Mm. Mm. Thanks for watching SMWX. Before we get back to the episode, I just wanted to let you know the four ways that you can help support this channel if you want to see us growing bigger and better to keep you more entertained and informed. The first way is you can invite me to speak at your company, your school, your institution. You'll see the contact details down below. The second way is that you can become a member of this channel. Become a member or you can give us a thanks. You'll see there's like a heart with a dollar sign in the ribbon below this video. Buy me and the team some coffee for this episode. The third way you can get involved is you can advertise on the channel. Now, I'd much rather the community of viewers would be advertisers on this channel than me going out to people who don't really know about SMWX and trying to explain it to them. So if you're a viewer and you have a business and you want to partner and you love this platform, let's partner on this channel. And then finally, you can buy merchandise, you can buy books. All this is in the description down below. Now let's get back to the episode. I'm sure you've also seen this on the Cliff Central show in your broadcasting career as well, when you talk about advocates and their collegiality. Mm. Public figures, uh, people in the media can be at, at, at Poli each other's politicians. throats. Yeah, politicians are the I best I mean, they'll say the worst things mm. to each other. Mm. And then you'll see them like a week later yeah. hugging and <laughs> glad-handing each other. And how are you? Yeah, and you exactly. think... Hell's this? These people yeah. are putting on a show. You know what's even more crazy for me is is when you see the journalists who oh, are yeah. attacking the yes. politicians, and then they want to be yeah. so badly want to be around them. It's so it's so crazy. Like I was I was at a public event just over the, the December holidays. <clears throat> sorry, a, a private um, event, mm. and like journalists and senior politicians, just like oh yeah, you can see how know. they each feed off the other. But they're also around each other. It's like that yeah. the idea of, of survivor. You put people on an island long enough and they spend enough time with each other, they're either going to fall in love, have sex, or murder each other. <laughs> so it's the same for politicians and media. Yeah. They're constantly around each other. Mm, mm. I mean, you can see it with <laughs> White House spokespeople and their relationship yeah. with the media. It's adversarial as hell. And then They'll sit in the uh, canteen and, and, and have mm. breakfast with each other and laugh about their children and their lives. And yeah, yeah. I think that's quite good, but I don't like the performance part of it. Mm. I don't yeah. like that they're putting on a facade, and I've never been good at that. Yeah. I remember once going to the Samas and then a few weeks later going to the IEC Result Center and getting this unmistakable feeling that they were exactly the same place. <laughs> and probably as serious as each other. Exactly. There was definitely as much drinking going on, I'm sure. <laughs> the Samas were definitely more serious. And I was like, where have I seen this before? Yeah. Oh, last week at the Samas. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Like, 
Yeah, have you have you been to the result center by the way? I went there. Yeah. Uh, this is a good story. I was there in 99 when Tabombeki was elected. Oh wow. And I had just started my media career. I was a, an election reporter for How 702. How old are you, Gareth? I'm very old. <laughs> Thousands of years. Like dragons. Yeah. Um but I I was the first person to congratulate him and say hmm. because he was standing right near us when the elections the results came through and I said Congratulations, Mr. President. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to have to get used to that. Hmm. And I thought, wow, that's quite cool. I'll tell wow. my kids that story once, wow. one day. And I'm not telling them, I'm telling you. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I also danced with Nkosa Sanat Lamini Zuma that night because she was celebrating. Yeah. And I was like 19 or whatever. Yeah. I couldn't believe these people I was hanging around with. Yeah. yeah. And it was really, really cool. And, and, for me, one of the most exciting things that I could possibly have been involved in. This is an election, only our second election as a democracy, mm -hmm. you know, as a country, mm -hmm. free fair elections. Um, I, I, I was, I would see Brigalia Bum, who was the head of the IEC at that stage, yeah. and she and I would like. She thought I was just some kid who'd like wandered into the IEC, and I liked that. She was like, "Come and sit here. Come and see what we're doing here." <laughs> and it it was special to see. Also that, again, despite parties contesting very fiercely for this ward or that municipality or whatever it was, mm. they were also like just being human around each other. They were yeah. tired. Some of them had been there for days in a row, no sleep. Mm. They, were, they were important and, and, and uh, powerful people sleeping on the floor because they were waiting for these results that yeah. would determine whether or not they'd be back in parliament again. Mm. You know, mm. It was an exciting place to be. So yes, I have been to the, the rock, as they call it. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been to the Samas, and I completely agree with you. They're the same. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Any Samas stories or maybe? <laughs> no, those, those oh, are... Well, that story will be for members. Well, yeah. You could charge more for <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> uh, another thing I'm interested in, I mean, I was trying to figure it out and you told me just before we we, we went live that You've been in this game of broadcasting and interviewing and, and the media for 25 years. Hmm. What are your thoughts on the interview? Because I'm five years in on this and <clears throat> what a fascinating art, what a fascinating science, maybe. You have probably interviewed more people than I can even imagine. Thousands, thousands and thousands of people in different forms and modes. What do you... What have you learned about the art of the interview? Do you have a theory on what makes the best interviews? And let's start there. Um, first of all, it's your job as an interviewer to make everybody fascinating. And everybody is if you just ask them the right question. Yeah. So I don't think that it's about the guest necessarily. Hmm. Um, and I think people come to the best interviewers in spite of the guests sometimes, and usually they're surprised. I mean, the most interesting people I've interviewed are not billionaires, state presidents, kings, um, celebrities. Mm. They're just people with great stories, just truly amazing stories and stories of overcoming enormous difficulty, stories mm. of, you know, just hilarity, just really, really ridiculous and stupid things. <laughs> And people love that. I mean, I did the last interview with, with WHP before he, he took his own life. Hmm. And he kind of told us he was going to do it, you know. And, and wow. He, it, was a, it was harrowing. I did an interview with Ricky Rick on a similar basis, so I hope I'm not hmm. going to be uh, in the business of doing people's obituary interviews. But hmm. 
Both of those guys were tremendously talented, very, very thoughtful, very serious people, actually. Yeah. Despite the fact that they were musicians and rappers and could mm-hmm. could entertain millions of people. They they had this um this core of I mean, Ricky was especially smart. You could sit and talk to that guy for <laughs> two hours and suddenly and like you were surprised when I brought up Plato's Republic. Mm-hmm. I was constantly surprised by the things he was reading, the people he was listening to, the kinds of information that he was sharing um, on, on his platforms. And he was, he was preparing to start his own show at that point too. Hmm. And I think those kinds of interviews stick with you. But mm-hmm. the art of the interview, I think the, the reason it's compelling to watch and the reason it's flowered and there are now so many people who are doing this and yeah. some who have no experience but they're doing it extremely well mm. is that you don't really know where it's going to go. When you put two people together, it could go extremely well. Yeah. They might get along like a house on fire. They might argue a lot and there'll be a big to and fro. Mm. But the exciting part is it's totally unpre- it's unpredictable to the interviewer. Absolutely. It's unpredictable to the interviewee and to the audience. So... It's not like this is going to follow a pattern. And what's happened in entertainment, if, yeah. if it's in the category of entertainment, because it might be in the category of learning. Yeah. A yeah. lot of interviews, people listen to and watch because they want to learn something. You know, at Cliff Central, we've, we've always had information, entertainment, empowerment, and mm. inspiration as our mm. kind of guiding principles. Mm. But some people watch just to be entertained. And in the entertainment world, a lot of that became very scripted. A lot of it became, yeah. especially on the late night shows, you start off with a monologue, you go into a guest, the guest has already prepared those stories, mm. you know the stories, you're acting it out, everybody could see through it, it was so fake and plastic. Yeah. And even though it was entertaining and the ratings were consistent, mm. nobody cared. And that's why now it's sunk to all time lows. And now there are podcasts in America that are bigger than all the late night shows put together. I was gonna. I was gonna say. I mean, f- actually, wait. There's so much that's interesting about that. Um, it's your show. We can go anywhere you want. <laughs> the double H, <laughs> the double H P and Ricky Rick interviews. Uh, can you go deeper into that and what you remember about about those interviews? I, I was I was quite friendly with both of them, so mm. I knew them well. So they were comfortable around me. It wasn't like they were they were there to help my show along or that I was trying to get something out of them. Mm. So we were sitting in the studio, we would just hit record, and we'd just talk. And I had been at numerous like social events with the two of them. I knew their families. I kind of, and, and Ricky especially, I, I, I had started, we'd started chatting on like the phone, and I thought he was a really, really interesting guy. And there was a lot that I wanted to learn from him. So we started talking about politics and the economy and mm. the music business and all of that stuff. But it very quickly got into human relations, mm. very quickly got into what kind of society he would like to see us living in, very quickly got into the, 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 the principle, this, the first principle discussions around like big, deep things, the meaning of life and that kind of thing. And when you go there, that you don't really have to hold back anymore yeah. because there's a bit of vulnerability between both of you. You are asking a question because you're curious about the answer, mm. but by asking that, they know that that's a soft spot for you. So if they want to push back, they can, and they can just go, 
no, I'm not interested in talking about that. Sure. And you can simultaneously give up or you can try again. Um, and because we were comfortable in both of those interviews, we went into it and, and Double HP said to me, I've thought about killing myself a lot. Oof. And, you know, I, I usually try to make it funny and humorous. So I said to him, bullshit, how, how are you going to do it? <laughs> and he said, well, and then he sort of smiled. He said, well, I don't think hanging is a very good one. It's kind of, you don't want to, who's going to find you, you know? <laughs> he said, maybe an overdose, but what if it doesn't work? <laughs> so he doesn't want to cut his wrists. I mean, it's macabre and, mm. and weird thinking about it now. But by the end of it, <laughs> I said to him, don't do this because there are many, you know, <laughs> Julius Malema once said to me after I was arrested for speeding, he phoned me. <laughs> And I use wow. this line all the time. And now, I mean, like, we're not like, like we're friends or anything. But he yeah. phoned me and said, Chief, there are many people who don't like you. And there are many people who don't like me. But there are more people who like you. And there are more people who like me. Mm. And I've never forgotten that. It's, it's, people often mm. underestimate him. He's also extremely smart mm. and thoughtful. We'll disagree on most of the stuff that he stands for but I don't underestimate that guy. Mm. And with Double HP, I remember saying to him, there are a lot of people, there are more people who really care about you. And I think we've got a problem in this country where a lot of men, and I think especially a lot of black men, feel that they're only being evaluated on what they can bring home. And I think that comes from a lot of hurt. It comes from a lot of, and, and I'm not, I'm, there's a pop psychology on my part, but from people I've spoken to, and that mm. counts, you know, mm. Mm. as much as anything else, people I've interviewed who've been honest with me, a lot of guys in this country feel like the only value they can bring is this. Mm. And if they don't have this value, they have no purpose because yeah. who needs them? Strong, independent women. We can raise these kids ourselves. My mother raised me. What, what point is there in being more than that? Mm. And if you can't just bring home the money, and that isn't your whole value is wrapped up in that. Then what are you? And I think that that weighed heavily on both of those guys. Not that they were in unhappy relationships, although I don't know. It would be wrong of me to assume anything. Um, and maybe there were other pressures as well. But remember, we had gone into, certainly with Ricky, we'd gone into, into COVID. And that had been enormously stressful for people mm -hmm. in the entertainment business. Yeah, sure. Uh, there, there, was, there was no light at the end of the tunnel, the beginning of that. They were like, everything is gone, gone. It stopped mm. from this incredible life that they were living at the top of their game where everybody was clamoring to get a ticket among thousands to see them doing something. And then suddenly they were stuck at home. Yeah. No way to talk to their people. Horrible. Does, does the noise and the clamor and the social media opinion get to you? No, because I'm not on X, so I don't. My my business partner has the logins. I don't participate in any of that. That's the most foul and toxic of them all. And I admire what Elon's Absolutely. done there. Absolutely. And I think Twitter, you know, it has it has a, an an unbelievable outsize advantage for humanity if used properly. Mm. But it's become this terrible cesspool and it became this a long time ago so it's not me whining about it now because it didn't work for me and yeah. it did i mean i was i was one of the first people to reach a million At followers point, in South you had Africa. the biggest account in South yeah and and then i got to two million when we mm. started cliff central which mm. i was very proud of and we used it as a 
as a tool for marketing. But yeah. unfortunately, there's there's no context there. Mm. You've got a lot of very bitter, resentful people with, frankly, mental health issues who are on there all the time. Mm. And it's their only way of engaging with other people. It's deeply, deeply pathological and unhealthy. Mm. And I don't need it. I really, it's just not for me. So I've got a show. You want to hear what I have to say? Come and listen. Come and watch. Yeah. Um, if you don't care about me, cool. I'm not going to try and win you over. And social media and the clamoring and the noise, I luckily got that out of my system at a young age. Mm. So this is where I was mm. 20 when I started doing a, a show on 702 at that time after campus radio. Mm. And it was very sexy and exciting to be you know, a celebrity, a South African. I mean, like as much as you can be a South African yeah. celebrity. Yeah. But people recognize you and you get invited to things and you're in the news and what you say suddenly matters to more than just your family. Mm. And all of that can be very intoxicating. And it was in my 20s, driving sports cars, mm. you know, uh, beautiful women, like exciting uh, holidays, all that kind of shit. Mm. And then thankfully, at some point I grew up and I realized, you know, you're just a prop in that person's picture, actually. Yeah. They're not really that interested in you. Stop imagining that you're important because you're really not. And fame can be so dizzying. Uh, I remember going to the, the Oscars as an example of this. Hmm. But I watched Charlize win for Monster. And I thought suddenly, this woman's life has reached its apogee doesn't get better than this. When they write her story one day, there's nothing more she can do to yeah. up the ante on this. And she's done great movies since then. I'm uh, by no way means sure. saying Charlize Theron is a failure, you know. <laughs> but yeah. at that moment where she gets the Oscar for Best Actress, like that's the moment that she's at her peak mm. in terms of public attention and love. And I thought, that poor woman, because it suddenly occurred to me, there are two ways she can go here. She can become like Catherine Hepburn and go and live quietly and never yeah. talk to anyone again. Or she can chase and chase and chase this until it kills her. Mm. Keep looking for that high. And I luckily, I gave up on the high, which was very easy for me. Um, hmm. You know, I, I still people still uh, talk about the show we did on 5FM. It's 10 years ago. That thing was massive. I'm amazed by it. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm extremely grateful when people say to me, oh, that show we used to listen every day on the way into school or work, yeah. and you made us laugh. And I felt like we had my, my greatest contribution there wasn't the three million listeners we had every morning or the huge amounts of money that we were bringing into the SABC. It was that we were showing South Africa how we could sound as a country when we were in a good mood. And I was doing that consciously with Fresh mm. in the afternoons. Mm. Didn't have anything to do with management. They wouldn't have known how to wipe their backsides. But <laughs> we, Fresh and I decided, he was at YFM, I was at 702. We both decided when we moved yeah. across, this is what we wanted to do. We wanted to give young people in this country who were hopeful and optimistic. You know, we still believed in, there was still a shine on South Africa mm. at that point. I'm not saying it's all gone, but there's definitely a cloud that's crept in we can agree on that yeah and i think young people are feeling disillusioned Absolutely. like never before and, and i don't blame them yeah. but at that point we we knew what south africa sounded like when it was a happy place mm. and we made it happen every morning and he made it happen fresh in his team in the afternoon wow. that was what we wanted to achieve and i think that's why it stuck it wasn't just a radio show
It's so interesting to hear that that was deliberate and yeah, conscious. Boy, absolutely. And goes back to that thing about how people don't realize how much thought can go into curating an experience on media, which feels natural and normal and often is, but actually has I mean, a, a deeper thought behind I it. I remember we used to, Mabali on my show used to do angry black poetry. Now, you could never do that now. <laughs> you'd, ne- you'd never get away with that now. Yeah. We used yeah. to make jokes all the time about everything. There was no sacred cow. Mm. Uh, and I was this militant atheist for which I've had to reform over yeah, the years. Yeah. Ah, Dawkins I've was come all in fashion. Yeah, Dawkins was the big deal. And, Those were and heady I, days. Yeah. yeah the economy think, was growing. And <laughs> but I think we, we made a, a difference to people because they, they were feeling good about being South African. They were, they were like, you know what? This, this country's got some, some chops because we've been through a lot and we've decided we're going to make a better world than we mm. inherited. Mm. And it was on purpose, and it was, a, it was something that I think we've lost somewhere. Um, and, and I don't know whose responsibility it is to bring it back. I yeah. don't know that it's going to be just one person or two people or even a thousand. It's going to be a whole lot of us. Mm. Mm. The country has been in such a deep malaise for what feels like so long that we've forgotten what it feels like when things were good and they weren't perfect, but there was a time when things were good and it felt like things were heading in the right direction. And we've almost given up the hope that we could ever return to that kind of atmosphere. Yeah. And again, I say, I don't blame young people because the opportunities for them are extremely limited. Our economy is shrinking. Um, We're fighting among amongst each other, which is always what happens when things are on the down, right? Things are on the up. And remember, we had 6% growth rate then. Oh, yeah. So the economy was booming. We had, I mean, I remember it was Tabombeki in the union buildings, Trevor Manuel running finance, Titumboeni running the Reserve Bank. Yeah. And we had people, we had ministers who we could look up to. I remember thinking, I want to interview that minister. Mm. I want to talk to this person because mm. they're smart. They, they're making this country better. Yeah. And I look around now and I think there isn't one of those people who I'd want to talk to. First of all, no one would want to listen to them. It's not going to bring me audience. It's yeah. not going to please the audience I already have. But second of all, what are they going to add? I, I would come to talk to you five days a week before I'd go and spend yeah. 15 minutes talking to anyone who's in our cabinet at the moment, or even the leaders of all our political parties, frankly. You, you know, I do spend a lot of my, <laughs> my time talking to ministers, talking to people who are leading government. And the thing that depresses me about it <laughs> so much is you just can't believe the complacency. Like that thing you were saying about going to the Rock or the Samas or the Oscars, and you can see people's faces and you can... There's a certain thing you get in person that doesn't quite translate over the camera. But I keep asking people if they know how bad things are or why they aren't more like urgent Hmm. about the situation. And you just get this sense of complacency. And I don't know how we get that out of our our government without a vote. That that shocks And the people, because you get the government you deserve. That's the ugly thing that we don't want to look in the mirror. We've become complacent. Right. So the the average South African, we see someone on the side of the road who's looking desperate and hungry and and probably 
not mentally okay. Mm. And we drive past. We see stories in the news about cholera breaking up in like breaking out in in a in a a 2023 world that should not be a story it's and we should be in the streets like people protest about i don't know what uh, would get people fired up now but you remember those ridiculous like zoom must go protests <laughs> i thought well at least they're, they're at least they're enthusiastic sure. about something but we should all be enthusiastic about standing up and saying this is not on right I know that these things are more numinous and it's difficult if you're not personally affected to care about other people. But we've, this, the social media stuff has also disintermediated us from each other. Mm. We're Mm. not an arm's length where we don't actually look each other in the eye and we don't actually empathize. We're not, we've lost the ability to have conversations and compassion. People mm. talk a big game on social media. They're all trying to Absolutely. look like they're nice people. You know, sure. today I did this, or look at this. I'm taking a picture of me with this homeless people. It's the most terrible, terrible thing you could ever imagine is this, this like voyeuristic poverty porn that people put up mm. on social media. But they're doing it without any self-awareness at all. It's this idea that this is making me a good person. No, being a good person is actually going out there spending time with someone. And that's not hard to do. It doesn't have to cost you. Yeah. And we've lost that. I think we are the problem. Then you can start bringing the government in. When people talk mm. about things, real social ills, like GBV. Sure. They go, oh, the gen- gender-based violence is out of control in this country. And I go, yeah. So who's, the, who's at fault? And they go, well, the government. And I go, no, it can't be the government. The government's not coming into your house. They don't have an agent sitting in your room while you're beating your wife. Mm. That's, that's not the government. So that's a social ill. Talk about fatherlessness. Where are these dads? Mm. That's not the government. They didn't come and take your father away. There are historical things that we sure. can get into. There's a lot of depth and complication to, to most of these stories. Mm. Mm. And in fact, when you sit with anyone, even your worst enemy, and you talk to them, you really talk like you asked about interviewing. Yeah. That's why I'm bringing this up. Yeah. When you really sit and talk to someone, but you're interested in their answers, you won't be enemies at the end of that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much you hate them at the beginning. And we've lost that. So if we can reconnect and start talking to each other, not on devices, but in reality, mm. we'll make this country better in increments. And then slowly those increments become exponential. And before you know it, we've got a country that where we're talking to each other again, communicating properly. Yeah. People are... are actually interested in other people, not just themselves. And then the politicians will have to. I've got this this theory that long-form conversations on digital platforms, which are free from the strictures of, you know, the, the commercial limitations and, and, and the, uh, shall I even use the word, what's the, what's the word, uh, p- political correctness? Yeah. Um, yeah. Are actually becoming the antithesis of the problem that we spoke about on X where, you know, you're compressed so you can't find nuance and you're in your lager and you're angry and so the worst of you comes out. Guaranteed, the fact that we are having this conversation will mean that we are both attacked viciously on Twitter, right? Because how can Gareth Cliff, how can I? But you don't have to, you don't have to drive past every tech addict and listen to them scream at you. (laughs) 
You don't have to take Tro- those trolls have too. been dealt with. So exactly. Yeah. I don't I, care. I, Scream and moan and Yeah, but but like in that era I think proper conversations across uh, you know across what we think are divides, political divides, racial divides, gender divides, whatever they are. And generation divides. Generational well, you see yeah. your I mean your you are you are quite old to be true. <laughs> Very old compared <laughs> to you. But millennials and Gen Z have been people have, have simplified and, and categorized them and demographied them by survey mm-hmm. into the most hideous categories. I've, I've seldom met mm-hmm. in person someone in their 20s in this country who's not interested in substance. But if you went on social media yeah. or you spoke to marketing people or advertising agencies, mm-hmm. you'd think they were the most vacuous people in the world. Yeah. Most people in their 20s and 30s that I've met have a deep burning desire to talk about substantial things and to dig below the surface. Mm-hmm. They don't want the 140 characters or 280 characters. They don't want the GIF or the meme. They actually, that stuff is like wallpaper now. And you're quite right. You mm-hmm. said it just now. The antidote to all of this kind of clickbait, um, soundbite, yeah. meme world that most of us are living in and that is just saturated beyond it's like a swamp we now are craving meaning we're, people mm. are going and reading the classics again mm. people mm. are starting to look at philosophy as a, as a as a degree worth studying i mean i used to mock philosophy and say well how are you going to get a home loan if you're a philosopher yeah. but actually Says the guy who was quoting plato's republic <laughs> but but philosophy used to be in universities the topmost oh, of the Oxford. degrees. You, right? can't, you can't do better than classics right. and philosophy. So if you're a philosopher, that means you've learned all the other stuff. And yeah. now you're thinking about the deep, abiding, meaningful questions in life. Mm. And I feel like young people in this country are tired of being patronized. Again, I'm not speaking on behalf of them because I don't have a mandate. But every single one definitely that not. I've ever interacted with. Definitely not. No, definitely. And that's also why I would never go into politics because I don't want someone's mandate to have to do what they want in parliament. Yeah. But these people are interested in substance and mm. they're not getting it from media. That's mm. why all Absolutely. these media houses of Sports Illustrated just closed. LA Times just fired like three quarters of their staff. Mm. The New York Times is laying off people every other week. Yeah. And... All of these media businesses that thought they had it worked out are now failing and falling to pieces because they're no longer serving a purpose. Yeah. No one wants their machine of generated content anymore. Yeah. I mean, I get these snooty journalists all the time telling me that the kind of conversations that I try to curate, quote, aren't jo- And I, I, I don't care whether they're labeled as journalism or not, quite frankly. I'm not trying to get that. You're not a journalist. I, yeah, I don't. I don't even want Who to. Who wants to be? Exactly. It's a horrible yeah. profession. But then people Some are like of the worst people I <laughs> yeah, know. Are worth, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's this '90s idea of this interview as like you are the oracle and the authoritative figure who then puts the like, guest like Charlie Rose and Larry exactly. King, exactly. And that sort of thing. Yeah, and yeah. even uh, Jeremy Paxman. Yes. Or, okay. You know, Deborah Patter. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and and your job is to put your guest in a corner, uh, challenge them on some cherry picked quote, and and show that you know more than they do. And if you don't do that, then you're not doing journalism. And I'm like, the audience has moved so far beyond that. They already have read the cherry picked quotes. They already know what they believe. What they want to hear is what is this person really like. And that's a contribution too. Why do you think the things you think? 
Absolutely. You know, I th th those are the, the conversations I'm always most pleased to have with people. I, I interviewed a guy on Tuesday, the friendly Satanist. Oh this my. guy, he's, <laughs> so he's, I mean, it was a, you must listen to the interview because I think you'll find it interesting. But I wanted to know why this guy believed the things that he did. You can be the judge of whether or not he believed anything yeah. by the end of it. But it turned out to, to be a bit of a, like, I'm also smart, look at me mm. interview, mm. which is, I think that's fine. If you, if you want to come and sit opposite me and prove that you're smart, I'm sure the audience will love you for it. And there may be a few people who will go, yeah, you really are smart. And mm. that's what you're after, right? Mm. So you'll get it. But I, I, I was curious about why anyone would want to brand themselves yeah. as the friendly Satanist. <laughs> we never really got to it except that maybe he, he, he even said right up front in the interview, which I appreciate the honesty of. He said, actually, Satanism is just a goth in cosplay. Hmm. <laughs> I thought, wow. <laughs> well, then it's not a religion. And that was yeah, my point yeah. throughout the interview. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's not a religion. Hmm. And he eventually said, yes, it's not a religion. But it took a long time. Yeah. And a lot of to and fro. And, but still hmm. fun. A fun exercise, hmm. right? Hmm. Because hmm. now you're wrestling with each other. Yeah. That's fun. And it's not about showing off who's clever, as you said. It's about people actually being part of that conversation, mm. going along with it if they're watching or they're listening, because they're doing other things. They're slicing the bread for the sandwiches or whatever. Yeah. You're on in their headphones. Mm. I know that I'm not, they're not watching me with all of their attention. They're probably mm. on their other device at the same time. Mm. Mm. That's cool. But there may be something that gets said that they go, me too. Or, yeah. I don't agree with that. Yeah. Defend yourself. Explain that to me. And then you ask the question and they go, Good job, Cesar. Find out why he yeah. said that. Yeah. What What are your thoughts and and what is? Why do you um, place such a premium on free speech to the point where you appear to push the bounds of free speech deliberately, either sometimes through humor or sometimes through shock value? Mm. Um. What is, what is the deeper set of beliefs going on there that you are trying to affirm? Well, honest communication is the, is the basis for every relationship. And if you want to have meaningful conversations with people, there has to be a mutual respect. And respect is to look twice, which means I look at it from my point of view and I look at it from your point of view. And if I'm not prepared to do that, then I can't have the honest communication and all of that is bound up in the idea of free speech. Now, as your father will attest, and I've had these conversations with him, there are people who think that there is a category of hate speech. I know that there are hateful, terrible people in the world. And I don't doubt that there are people who hate me that much. And I'm okay with that because you're not going to win everybody, you know? At the same time, I don't want them to have to disguise their contempt for me or to have to couch it in euphemism or to have to hide the ball during the game. Be proud of who you are. Even if you are a hateful, bigoted, nasty piece of shit, put it out there because then we know what we're dealing with. The thing I really don't like, and I think that we should all be aware of, are the people who proffer a version of themselves which is kindly, generous, sweet, 
and they're duplicitous as hell because behind the curtain they are Machiavellian, manipulative, unkind, ungenerous, vicious, cruel, and full of prejudices. And they hide it because society gives them a means to hide it. Now, only free speech will uncover. That's the sunlight that uncovers all of this. And we need to have that sunlight. And I don't believe it's absolutely sacred, and I don't believe there's, there's absolute free speech either because you can't incite violence in a crowd, for example. You know that there are consequences to that. And the criminal consequences are sufficient. Like you will go to jail if you start a riot, if the law is applied properly. But we have sufficient laws for those things. Speech, on the other hand, needs to be nurtured the whole time. It's always in fledgling state. It always needs to be given guarantees that it will be looked after. And if the majority of the people in a society don't look after that, it's very easy for the totalitarians and the autocrats to sweep in and smother free speech in its cradle. And when that happens, you have nothing but misery. So to me, it is worthy of being one of the few things that we must fight for and that we have, we've been guaranteed in our constitution. I feel strongly that I would rather hear an opinion I don't want to hear than have you muzzled. Voltaire, right? Indeed. So that's a good basis for any philosophy to begin with because, again, how can we have philosophical discussion if you aren't free to say what you want to say? I also tie in to complicate this, and I hope I'm not getting too wordy here, but to complicate the idea of free speech, I put it together with integrity. You only know you're free when there is no master you have to be careful of when you say something. That's how you know you're free. Sure. So anyone who is truly free can say things about anyone else. Obviously not libelous, uh, you know, vicious untruths because you will be tested against those too but Mm. you should be able to say i don't agree with you no matter how powerful that person is otherwise you're not free Mm. and integrity is being able to say what you think and do what you say so it's all tied up it's an easy way to evaluate whether or not you want to engage with an individual or not integrity and free speech go together and i like integrity in a person i don't know about you Tends to be a good thing. It's kind of important. Yeah, but it, but it can be it can be difficult difficult to swallow for sure. Um, hey, I don't always get it right. Yeah, none of us do. Absolutely, that's part of being human. So yeah, this doesn't mean that I am always going to be saying things that you agree with. I mm. constantly tell my audience, there's going to be a day, a <laughs> hundred things I've said that you've agreed with. There'll be a day that the one thing I disagree, and you might never listen to me again. Mm, mm. What do you think you've got wrong? Hmm. I, I mentioned the militant atheism earlier. Oh, yeah. So I think that came from a bit of intellectually you know, thinking that you're superior. And and Dawkins did a good job of that with mm. Dawkins his could books. give you that uh, that sense. He and he he made you think. Well, all the smart people are atheists. Yeah. And I, I've I've never really been a believer, and I'm still not. But what I've learned subsequent to all of that is that there's an enormous amount of hubris in being intellectually superior, mm. which does not endear you to people, or allow you to yeah. get proximity with them. And you may feel that you are demolishing them 
by beating them to death with an intellectual argument against their truly good faith arguments. And I mean good faith in <laughs> in its dual sense sure. here because there is there is there is faith from you that they are arguing honestly. Yeah. But there's also from their side a real belief, a structure, a scaffolding for all of the things that they value and the way they've built their life. Mm. As a as a religious person, be you a Muslim, a Jew, an an atheist, a Hindu, an atheist obviously doesn't fit into this, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Christian, whatever you are, I cannot immediately on the basis that your religion appears to me to be built on some intellectually unsound arguments yeah. i can't just disregard you cast you aside and i was very very mean and not nice to lots of people who didn't deserve it mm. people friends of mine for heaven's sake i had good friends who i would just abuse uh, mentally mm. and mm. i thought what a horrible thing to do i don't know when it clicked but that i regret mm. that i got wrong in a big way and i don't I don't have any of that anymore. Now when people start talking about their beliefs, their values, their, the source of their morality, their ethical code, I listen. And hopefully I'll learn something. I mean, I've, I've improved a little bit. Yeah. I've still got some way to go. Well, Gareth Cliff, it's been a joy to have you on SMWX. You know, uh, for some reason, I thought we were going to talk about the election, and then. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so yeah, much. Isn't yeah. there so much of yeah, that now? Exactly. I mean, but we, uh, we're doing a show once a week on the elections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think, I mean, I'd like to have you back at yeah, some point. I'd be, I'd be glad got to. Really good insights on that. I'd be glad to. And like I you just, said, interviews are. Would you ever go into politics? You know, literally from the age, because like you, I loved speeches and, yeah, and people immediately go. They project their desires onto you. Absolutely, is it a desire of yours? Um, I've always been from a very early age. People have always told me that's what they think I should do, and I've been grappling with that, trying to figure out if it's something I really want to do or whether it's an attempt to fulfill others people, other people's projections onto me. But I think it's something I would really like to do if I could do it on my terms. I think you'd be very good at it. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, when the moment comes, the man arrives, right? When the, the student, when the master, the student is ready, the master arrives. So at some point, you're going to have to take uh, the reins and, and make your contribution in that realm too. You've done it in other places. And I didn't ask for no reason. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for very having much, me. Sir. I appreciate that. Good. Aye, aye.